Hello and welcome to Mikey Pod Podcast, episode 335 for September 8th, 2021. Today's guest is musician and archivist, Dr. Louise Toppin. We'll be talking about the African Diaspora Music Project. It's a database that she created to help singers and orchestras to diversify their repertoire of works by African diaspora composers. Uh, it's kind of cool. It's extremely cool. <laughs> Throughout the, <laughs> the interview, you'll hear me going, what? Um, it's just really fascinating for me as someone who studied music and also over the past few years realized, oh yeah, um, why are we only studying white composers? <laughs> why are orchestras only playing music by white male composers? So it's interesting, uh, the, this conversation that we had. Um, to, to fill in the blind spots. Oh, that's a phrase I need to rework, isn't it? I'm talking too much. We're still in the interview here. We're still in the uh, introduction here. Um, anyway, I'm your host, Michael Heron. I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversation with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been setting this podcast to your ears for over 16 years. If you like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons in the side bar and footer at mikeypod.com or just search mikeypod in your favorite podcast directory if you'd like to know more about me stop by my website at michaelheron.com hit me up on social media everywhere as at michaelheron or you can email me at mikeypod at gmail.com ah <sighs> wow we made it through that intro i don't know why that felt really like ah really amped up i guess i just really want to get this podcast out and into your uh earbuds or airpods or speakers whatever you're listening in um i do like to check in in this little spot about things that are going on with me um a couple of things one is i've been working on a new zine uh if you're just starting to listen or pay attention to the kind of things that i do um i make these zines Mm, semi-regularly uh, with stories and they have an accompanying piece of music you could subscribe on my patreon page uh, the new one is all about my teeth and i've had a lot of issues with my teeth over the years and the whole thing that's happened over the last two years and when i say over the years i mean like through the course of my life <laughs> um and i go into a lot of this stuff in the in the zine uh, just about how my uh, I have ADHD and some other issues in that realm that make it difficult to do things like go to the dentist and sometimes brush my teeth. Like it's really, it feels so, I still have a lot of like shame and that kind of thing attached to this. But the point is I'm writing a story about that and it was going to be about the history of my dental life, which is pretty storied. <laughs> if you will. But what happened was it kind of became a history of my my ADHD and how it has um, uh, affected how I care for myself and how failing to care for myself, maybe the failing isn't the best word, kind of uh, created this vicious cycle of shame and another tooth getting a cavity and not going to the dentist and needing this and that, you know, like, so anyway, that scene's coming out next week. <laughs> It's actually a really, um, I, I, it sounds sad or it sounds dark, like it could be, but it's actually really the story of like figuring that out and going and being like, okay, this is where we are and being morally neutral about the current moment. That And that's a thought I picked up from um, a TikTok called Struggle Care. Um, and it turns out this person, I wish I could remember her name. Um, I'll put a link to all that stuff in the show notes because this has like been a revelation for me to have this idea. She talks a lot about caring for like doing self-care tasks 
while dealing with depression. So, or, you know, with ADHD and various different things. And one of the things that she says that has really like stuck with me, and it applies to creative work too, is being morally neutral about the moment you're in. So she, she could look at her, uh, oh, I could look at my apartment and say, oh, it's a mess. I'm a slob. I, you know, like all of these moral judgments about myself for allowing my apartment to be a mess, right? Um, or you could look at it in a morally neutral way and just, oh, this is the this is the state of my apartment right now, and it's not working for me. It's not caring for my life. What is a step I can take? You know, like, so I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person that I sure really am in that habit of, mm, <laughs> giving myself a hard time about things. And that just makes it worse, makes it harder to take the next step. So this has really been sticking with me. I wonder if I explained that very well. Anyway, that's where I'm at with my work. <laughs> I'd love to get into this interview. I feel like I just did a really random check-in. Um, get the zine, you'll know, you'll understand. I'll tell you all more about that in uh, future episodes. Let's get into the interview. But first... I've got to thank my subscribers on Patreon for powering this podcast. These are people who subscribe for $5 or more a month and get special perks like tons of free downloads of my music and scenes, which I just mentioned, bonus podcast. Almost every episode of the podcast has a bonus accompanying episode that's available only on Patreon. Uh, there are over 60 of them, maybe 70 now. Uh, that you'll have immediate access to when you subscribe. So if you like this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Michael Heron and subscribe. You can get even more of them. Um, and this week's bonus episode, like many others, features a bonus conversation with today's guest, Louise Toppin. Uh, it's a good one. And this interview you're about to hear is a good one. But first, wouldn't you like to hear Dr. Louise Toppin sing before we talk about... Um, all of her work. Uh, this is a piece of music called Hold Fast to Dreams, and it's written by Margaret Bonds. Hello, this is present Michael, here to correct past Michael, who has it wrong. That song was written by Florence Price, not Margaret Bonds. Please enjoy the music. And um, it's performed by Louise Toppin. So let's give that a listen, and after the song, we'll hear from the interview. Dreams 
That was Hold Fast to Dreams, composed by Florence Price and performed by Dr. Louise Toppin, who is joining me right now. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Toppin. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. Oh, I just discovered you and um, your work, and I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, So the main thing I want to talk to you about today is the uh, African Diaspora Music Project. But before Mm -hmm. we jump into it, is there anything you can tell us about the piece of music we just listened to? Sure. I'd like to say it's from a CD called I Love But A Day, which was a project I did on women, African-American, women and African-American women. So it's uh, women of all types. Um, But I particularly focused uh, or featured Florence Price and Margaret Bonds. And that was an Albany recording. John O'Brien was the pianist from and it was from 2000. Um, And I've spent a lot of my career studying the works of Florence Price and Margaret Bonds because I was so fascinated that these two African-American women win the Wanamaker Prize and lock up all the prizes in 1932, which was quite a feat and quite unusual. And yet I realized, you know, through my music education, I hadn't really heard much about them. And that set me off on my path of really spending time with these women. And I loved uh, I worked with the Price Scholar, who was Raylinda Brown, and she sent me that piece as she was getting ready to um, publish them. And she wanted to hear what they sounded like. So that's sort of how we started with it. And I, I performed them for her and then put them subsequently on a CD. But it's to the poem of Langston Hughes, poetry of Langston Hughes. She had a very um, frequent collaboration with him because he was a friend and a scholar. All of that like leads us really well into, of course, the project, um, the African Diaspora Music Project, which um, I, I was just about to jump in and define what it was, but you're probably well, more well-equipped to do that than I am. <laughs> yeah, certainly. So it's a project that is bringing together not only African-American, which is where I started with my dissertation area, was focusing on African-American music. And then the, the more I spent time with this music, the more I realized there was also a lot of work happening by Black people, for for better way of saying it, or Black other mixes outside of the United States. And particularly people, I found one of the early people was uh, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who lived at the time of Mozart in the 18th century. And his mother was from Guadeloupe. His father was French. So he was uh, one of those mulattoes who was raised in Parisian society and very well respected. And that piqued my curiosity. Well, who's that? Who else is there? Mm. And I found Samuel Coleridge Taylor in England. And then I was happened to have been reading something about Alexander Dumas, who I'd loved from the Three Musketeers, and he's a black Russian. And so there were all of these mixtures that I said, I wonder what what their music is like. So a lot of the diaspora is people in the Caribbean and then uh, those that I found in Europe and other places. And now I've actually added Africa because they're start, the continent is starting to do what we did a long time ago and writing down what was their oral tradition of song. Mm. So that's just now appearing, you know, a couple hundred years after um, the African-American tradition. Can you define the word diaspora for me? Because I worry that people like I was, I was a little like, wait, what is this? And I looked it up and I, I, I feel like it's important for me to like 
<laughs> acknowledge like, yep, there's some big holes in what I understand. So sure. perhaps there are others who are listening. Sure. The traditional diaspora dealt with the Caribbean and those in uh, Canada and Europe. I mean, those were the areas of the diaspora, but it's really black people living and working outside of the United States. Mm. But those that will have, or if you can, another way to think of it, of it is people of African descent outside of the United States. For, so it's coming from our perspective and what is outside of the United States. And I stretch it by including Africans because they're not really a part of the, the diaspora. Mm -hmm. They're from another continent and they have their own traditions. I, I think part of what excites me so much about this project, and it's really, <laughs> I, I don't want to get too, too fangirly, <laughs> like, oh, it's amazing. But, you know, I'm, I'm a musician. I studied music. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, like over the past several years, like a lot of us, I'm like, holy crap, there's a lot that is left out of what I've learned and I have to go figure this out. And it feels overwhelming to figure out like, wait, what do I do? And now here's the site that I've discovered <laughs> that you've put together where there are all of these composers that I could look through and add to, you know, I, I educate, I'm a music educator as well. Um, yeah. And now here's a place to go to like, okay, like... It's hard to find, as I'm sure you know as well as anyone, Absolutely. this information. Absolutely. And part of that's the reason I developed the site. And it, I actually have worked on this project for a long time, probably 15, 20 years, not knowing what I was going to do with it. As I began collecting this music, I put it in a spreadsheet like anybody else. I just wanted to keep my own collection you know, organized so I could figure out what I had. And then as I watched it grow, the voice part grew, of course, exponentially because I'm a singer first. I have two degrees in voice, but I also have two degrees in piano. So the piano part started growing exponentially, too. And then along the way, I just started collecting, you know, anything else that came of any other instrument. So I actually have a large collection just sitting behind me in, the, in my office. And so it started that way. And then I began to realize, wait a minute. Nobody else has this information or, you know, they're at, they keep asking me the same question over and over when I'd go do concerts in this area. And I said, I need to figure out a way to make this public so that, you know, in and of itself, because there were databases were just sort of coming into our psyche as, as teachers and educators. And but there still wasn't a model for what I wanted. I wanted to cite what I saw from others were sites that assume you already have some knowledge, mm. right? And so, I mean, a good friend of mine did, and I don't think he'd mind me saying that he did one on clarinet quintets. Well, that means you're already a clarinetist. You know that there are quintets and you're just looking for quintets. But I had repertoire that I felt, like you just said, we're all musicians. We had the same Western European education and nobody taught us about these people. So we don't even know who to look for. Right. So how do you create a site people can use that assumes no base of knowledge? And that was the tricky part. Or we know William Grant Still, Harry Burley, maybe a couple of names. But the vast majority, we wouldn't even know where to start. So I created it with the thought of, OK, I know I'm a tenor. That's all I know. And so you can just plug in the word tenor. And everything starts populating. You don't even have to click, you know, send. It just <laughs> starts 
populating for you just pages and pages of repertoire for tenor. It allows you to narrow it down You and you say, okay, I'm a tenor, but I'm interested in county culling. Is there any repertoire? And so those two filters, again, read the information and give you just those things. And so I began, I began to think of all and talk to people. How would you like to be able to search this site? You know, and we're still refining it. Some would say, oh, I want to only know spirituals. And the others would say, no, I don't want to see any spirituals. So we've added those extra filters and arias. Um, and, and then we even added a really unique one for voice. If you know your voice range is C4 to G5, then you can put that in and it'll do a separate filter than if you just say, I'm a soprano. Soprano will pull um, all sorts of stuff. But if you say that narrow parameter, it gets closer to you. So that was the point to almost individualize it. And then you start your research. And once you click on the first name, it takes you, as you saw, to a bio and all the songs by this composer. So you can begin to do a deep dive of, oh, wow, this is stuff that I don't know. And now we're adding the sound clips. So you don't even have to go to YouTube and look for yourself. We're putting it all together on the site for you. And we're still we still have some more phases to go, you know, with this site. We're nowhere close to being finished. That and that's really exciting news in a way. I'm maybe differently for you because you're doing all the work of putting it together. But it's exciting to realize like this is something that's going to be growing and growing as we and you discover more music. And and living composers are listed here as well. True. Very much so, because throughout my career, um, I got to know the African-American composers, particularly when I first, as I said, started on that path. I got to meet many of them. I did world premieres. And then the next thing I knew, they were writing for me. So I have between 30 and 50 songs written by composers for my voice. And many of them, like Adolphus Hellstork, would just send me a song whenever he'd write it. And that's what made me begin to realize I had a stack probably six inches thick or more of Adolphus Hillstrook songs that I'd never seen published. Mm. And I thought, wait a minute, I should not be the only person that knows these songs and has access. So this summer, I published five volumes of Adolphus Hillstrook songs. All 59 that he gave me are now published. Oh, that leads me to another question I wanted to ask sure. because it seems, or did I read somewhere that there's, you're planning on publishing some of this other music as have, part of this? I have, I did an anthology. So this year I published nine publications. Mm. So the pandemic was horrible, but it was also good in that instead of traveling for all my performances and lectures and stuff, I was at home, which meant I had a lot more time to actually work on these projects for once. So my first one was a Margaret Bonds anthology, and I had researched Margaret Bonds uh, for about 30 years. There had never been more than three or four of her songs actually printed, and then there were several of her spirituals. But it seemed like, again, that comes back to that Margaret Bonds I learned when I was first starting this journey. It just seemed really strange that somebody, I kept reading so many references about performances and she was so well known, would only have a handful of songs if that's her main output. I said, there have to be more than 10 songs. So that began my journey. And the anthology has 45 songs. Most of them had never been printed before. Mm. So we put that together together. Um, 
I did. I found a piano suite that I had played as a child, one movement. I thought that was the whole suite. And again, in it, I didn't know it was a part of a suite. I thought it was a single piece. Right. And then researching it as an adult, I found there were two pieces missing. I found those two pieces, printed all three together as a suite. And now the, the piece I had always played, which was the third one, it's a really fiery piece based on weight in the water. It starts with two contemplative pieces leading to that piece. Now the speed suite makes sense where that piece came from. So things like that I've really enjoyed doing. And the other anthologies, in addition to the Hail Stork, I was given a choral piece by Margaret Bonds, had never been printed um, by a, an octog- no, not even octogenarian, a hundred year old in Cal- centenarian in California gave me this piece. And he said, oh, yes, Margaret was my friend. He just handed me a piece, a manuscript. And so he couldn't, unfortunately, tell me, you know, performance history, which I regret. And I hope someone in California can do some more digging to really find it. But I felt it important to go ahead and bring the piece forward. Um, And so that has been published by Hildegard Press, The Five Hail Stork, The Two Bonds. And I just released one on June 19th. That is for college students, college and pre-professionals of 45 more composers that had never been printed. So, wow, mission. <laughs> but it sounds like an adventure, like d- discovering these pieces of history that have been, you know, overlooked or forgotten. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, Michael, it's been a deliberate thing in the sense that I didn't set out with any of this in mind. I set out like everybody else. I was a singer singing Queen of the Nights and also singing African-American music. So recitals, I would do both at the same time. And then 10 years ago, my my teacher and mentor, George Shirley, asked me to start a competition with him, but he wanted it to be on African-American repertoire for high school students. And that made sense. I'd already had a 20-year career doing this. And I thought, huh, a competition. So I don't know anything about running a competition, but I certainly knew about being in a competition Mm -hmm. from the other angle. And I said, I want this to be a different as you as you can tell from me, I'm a little different. I (laughs) want education is always at the forefront for me. And so I said, wow, this is an opportunity to monetize the learning of African-American repertoire. And then I expanded it to African diaspora. But not only is it an opportunity to monetize, why don't we teach people while they're there? Don't just bring them for the competition. They sing their pieces for 10 minutes, get no feedback and go away. What if instead we do classes? So we start off on Friday night with a concert. We compete all day Saturday. And in between, they had six master classes and two classes on spirituals and other things during the day. So now it's worth your time to come. Um, And we have high school, college, pre-professional divisions and a composer's division. So there's new music that they're getting a chance to see and talk to the composers. So it's now a weekend event. And part of my starting to publish was I realized as the students were trying to come up with repertoire for the competition, I kept seeing the same rep over and over. And I said, huh, they don't have repertoire. They don't have access to repertoire. So that's what helped to propel me with the database. And then as I put the database in, I was like, okay, everything's not printed. So I've told them the music exists, 
and I've given them com- publishers where it exists, but it's not enough. And so I went that next step and started publishing with uh, publishers, mostly classical vocal reprints and Hildegard Press have been so far. And I'm doing something for Oxford University Press. It's incredible work. Like it's and it's really fascinating to hear because it it it, it sounds like I think I used the word adventure before. But, you know, like people say, like, it's it's your passion. But it sounds like more than that. It sounds like, you know, an exciting Journey. I don't even know the word to put what I'm hearing here. No, you're you're absolutely right. That's how I take it. And for me, as an educator, I started educating K through twelve. Mm-hmm. And you know, you have to love it if you're going to educate the little ones. And I did. I absolutely enjoyed it. Um, every day was an adventure with the children, watching them learn and get excited about something. And, you know, the last 30 years have been with college students, but that same thing, watching a light come on when somebody discovers this music and says, wow, Dr. T, they call me Dr. T. Wow, Dr. (laughs) T, that really speaks to me. And I, that narrative, I've never heard a narrative from the perspective of a black person. And that really spoke to me. That's really powerful to me. And it doesn't matter the ethnicity of the student, but just hearing the student say, that really speaks to me. Mm. That's, that's what, you know, helps to propel me forward. Yeah. Um, so uh, composers who would like to be listed, um, mm-hmm. what, what is the process for doing that? The first iteration was, believe it or not, it started with all that music I had collected. So it was me and student workers directly inputting the information. With opening the orchestra part, we decided to do it a little differently. And we have a submission part. So we really thought carefully about the composers can update their bios, their photos. Because, you know, when we did the first pass asking them for their bios, it's two years. Maybe you want a, a Pulitzer in between and you want us to make sure we update it so they can do it directly themselves. But the general population can also say, oh, I ran across this really fantastic piece. They submit it. We have editors who do verification. So everything that's submitted, it's not a free for all. Right. We do still have a, a scholarly, you know, um, review of what's been submitted but and then we upload. So wow, how many people are on the team that work on this? The main ones on the team, um, James Blatchley is doing is the associate editor doing, uh, who's an orchestra conductor. He's doing the orchestral ones, and we have um, some other conductors who have come on board working with him. And I don't want to say names because I'm not sure if I have the right people. But there are we're working with some college. Uh, orchestra conductors as well as professional orchestra conductors. So there are several, I'm pretty sure I can say Chris Wilkins with the Akron Symphony is one of those that has agreed to be on the team. So they will look at those submissions. And in terms of voice, I have a few people. I'm I'm probably the best person to do that because I already know the repertoire. Mm -hmm. But I do have some other copy editors that will look with me. Uh, for cello, I have Tim Holly, who's the person who submitted the cello database, and he will filter through. The other areas, we still have different people looking at, like Nyaho Chapman does piano for us. So we've, we've, we're set. We're ready for people to submit the repertoire and, and get it together. The other, I think the other important piece is 
We do not negate the fact that there are others who have done work in this area. There are databases now, the Composers of Diversity Initiative. We've actually spoken with creators of other databases. And my point and hope is to put links to other databases so that when you come to our site, it's not just our site, but you're also able to go elsewhere and look, mm. you know, see or link to it on the pages. So we're working on it. Yeah, because the spirit here is including and and gathering information, right? Right. It's just trying to help people cull through what, you know, before now nobody was looking, but now everybody's looking. So we're trying to help cull through all of that and really um, you know, help guide their 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 practice as they're looking mm. for this tour. Speaking of everyone's looking now, are there organizations that are specifically you feel are specifically doing a great job of like stepping up to the plate and and making more inclusive programs, um, different symphonies, um, arts organizations, any that come off the top of your head? Well, I will say um, Minnesota Orchestra has joined us in terms of partnering and, and providing some recordings. They have, we've had many conversations with them about how they're planning their season, not for just a concert that includes, includes African-American music, but they really have already planned the music throughout the season. And so we're looking at those organizations that are making those kinds of commitments. I've been doing a lot with universities and having a lot of conversations and some conversations started in August and we've had continuous conversations as they've told us how they're doing, what they're doing, how they hope to continue improving. So people are really looking at curriculum and other aspects to to make, I think, really substantial changes. I think for the first time, a music education is going to have a different look to it, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm very hopeful about that. Mm. And I, I, I just am always hopeful it's it's sustained and for the right reason and not let's check a box, you know, and inclu- include a piece, but rather this is an important story that helps us tell the American story. That's why we want to include this repertoire. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so... You know, interesting, and I feel like I'm staying the obvious to you, but you know, as a, a undergrad <clears throat> piano performance major mm-hmm. was what I did. I can't think of a single composer of color whose music I played. Like, nope. I literally cannot. Like, nope. that's mm-hmm. uh, it's sad. It's yeah. very. I remember because me too. I was an undergrad piano major at UNC Chapel Hill, and I did a master's in piano, and I did accompanying at Peabody. And it it actually was before I came to college, I studied piano with a teacher who was on the faculty of Virginia State University, which is a historically black college and university. And I remember she gave me Margaret Bond's Troubled Water when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And she wasn't, of course, because she was teaching black students, she would you know, give me a few pieces. That's just one that stuck in my mind that she gave me. But then I went to college, nothing. Grad mm-hmm. school, nothing. And until I went to do my doctorate, um, which Michigan has always had a um, a legacy since 1968 of including African-American art song. 
uh, because the Mm -hmm. person that did the most, Willis Patterson, taught on the faculty there and was the associate dean. And so they had a class actually in African-American music. And I was like, a whole class in the, but that was my sort of awakening that all the rest of the courses I had, if I saw William Grant still in a textbook, maybe there's a mention of him in my earlier studies, maybe a mention of Burley. That's about it. But Mm. we didn't, like you, we didn't talk about the music. We didn't perform the music. We didn't do the operas. We did there's just nothing. Mm. in the 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 whole education so that's what we're hoping the students are asking for something different and i'm very much hopeful that we will all become more responsive not exclude anybody but i've often said to people if you're trying to teach classicism why not talk about Chevalier de Saint-Georges as you teach what the style of classicism is about. He standardized the string quartet in France. Why not talk about then and then have Mozart string quartet, the analysis you do for homework. That's the way you bridge and bring those two together. But that takes more thought Mm -hmm. to say, you know, anything that the European, white European composers we've all studied did, there were black composers doing it too. Make them the homework assignment and let the students learn who they are along the way. And, you know, that's kind of a knee jerk reaction that we hear from from white educators <laughs> who are like, uh, yeah, I've just I know <laughs> Facebook. Don't get me started. But go ahead. Go oh, ahead. No, I know what you mean, because the, the reaction is. But there's not already not enough time in the curriculum and I don't want to take something away. And it's not that you're taking away, it's that you're adding to and you're being creative. I I thought, especially us in music, we're creative beings. So how much harder would it be out of, you know, you've got five choral concerts you do to actually devote some time on each one. You're going to do 12 composers. Why couldn't one of those be a person of color Mm -hmm. on each of the concerts? That's what just and not always just a spiritual. There is other concert repertoire. Mm-hmm. The vernacular music is fine, but there's a whole tradition of music. And so I just it takes more thought and more creativity. But as a voice teacher, I always assign my students African American composers among the they have to do six pieces a semester is usually what undergrad voice people do. And so there's always one of those is an African-American or other ethnicities. I've signed Japanese songs just because. <laughs> uh, I knew I was going to want to talk to you forever, but we're coming to the end of our time. Is there anything I left out of the project that we should make sure we talk about? Well, the last thing I want to say is what phase two and th- the next phase of the database are about. And one of the pieces is that a, we're trying to put recordings with the pieces, all of them, both on the orchestral side and the voice side. And as you can imagine, with the orchestral side particularly, that's going to be a challenge because we need an orchestra to do that. And so fortunately, as I said, Minnesota is one of the orchestras that's stepping up and is doing some of those recordings. But also we're inviting universities and others. If you have good recordings and you're using some of this music, Give it to us. Let us put it on free. If you put it on YouTube, we're linking. And so people can hear and and, as well as see these scores, because that's what's going to encourage people to perform this music. 
And then the other piece is just me as a as a, a nerdy uh, historian type person is I'm including the first uh, first page of a couple of the pieces by a composer. Uh, I'll only do it on one, but I want people to learn the handwriting of these composers, Mm -hmm. especially somebody historic like Margaret Bonds. Since we're looking for them, I want them to be able to see that's what her actual hand like. It's very distinctive. And, you know, we've all gone to computers, so we're not as cognizant of how important it is to know what that handwriting is to help us find the find more pieces. Oh, so we will have on the website those, you know, the younger generation that's all on computers. There's nothing we can do, and they're digitizing and doing fine. But the older ones, I have a lot of manuscripts by a lot of the older composers, and so that's what we're going to scan a first page of something. Just have it by their photograph and and bio so that people can help us find these. That is also fascinating. When you mentioned um, the recordings of the orchestral pieces and finding an orchestra to play them, that was the first moment it dawned on me that some of these pieces have never been heard. No. No. Pieces that, well, actually, the William Grant Still Opera, there are several operas that have never had an official opera company premiere. They've all been played by somebody. Mm-hmm. But to have like a major opera premiere, there's a bunch of them that still haven't done that. And you're talking about somebody that died in 1973. This yeah. is like, yeah. it's so exciting to think of what your project can open up for so many organizations that have, you know, all everything we've talked about. It's, it's very exciting to see. I can't wait. I'll be following along. <laughs> oh, thank you. And, and, you know, we always know that the, the biggest challenge is, is, is funding so that we can have the student help to do this. The, the project itself doesn't, you know, cost anything in terms of people inputting data. And we're all donating our time as editors to do it. But we do have the web costs, of course. If we update things, that's where our costs come in. So we are very hopeful that some wonderful angels will at some point step up and say, you know, this is a cool enough project that we want to really help. We're looking for ways to partner with others to um, really make this what it needs to be for the field. It's not about, you know, I'm close to retirement, so it's not going to help me academically. And, and, and I've never done any project that was about, you know, my career. Mm-hmm. My career was as a singer. I've, I've done that. But this is to me... Um, I'm a, I don't know if you know anything about my father, but he was a public historian and I very much followed in his footsteps as there's not a thing as a public musician. But I guess that's what I'm I would say I am because I'm always trying to do projects that are for the public good. If people do want to contribute, there's a there's a spot on the website. Am I right? Do I remember seeing that? <laughs> Can you yeah. tell us the website, the web address? Sure. It's African Diaspora Music Project dot org. It's just all run together. Uh, amazing. Well, I'll put links for all of these things in the show notes of this episode as well. Yay. And um, it was really <laughs> delightful to talk to you. And we'll be doing an extended conversation uh, for patrons uh, of this podcast. So if you didn't get enough uh, and you're a patron, go to patreon.com slash Michael Heron. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Dr. T, if I may call you that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I appreciate it.
That was another piece from Dr. Louise Toppin. It was another piece also written by Margaret Bond's Songs of the Season 2, Poem of Autumn, I believe is what the French means. I was about to try to say the French. I tried to practice it, and I just don't have faith that I could get it right. <laughs> but you get the idea. Thank you so much, Dr. Louise Toppin, for being on the show this week. And thank you person who's listening for listening. In the beginning, I said that the zine is coming out next week. It's coming out next month. I misspoke. Um, and um, I can't wait to share that thing with you all. I can't wait to see it myself. I'm in the process of polishing up the writing, and it's going to be designed by uh, Luke Curtis, as always, and out in your hands as soon as possible. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>